0: Welcome to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm one of your hosts, Greg Schill, a law professor at the University of Iowa. Today, we have the sixth in a series of special episodes from a recent symposium on the future of law and transportation. It features the keynote address of Beth Osborne, who is the Director of Transportation for America, a nonprofit group that advises on transportation policy. Today's is the final installment in this special series from the Symposium. We will return with a new series of traditional interview-based Densely Speaking episodes later in the spring. Thanks and enjoy the show. my pleasure to now introduce Beth Osborne, our first keynote speaker. Beth Osborne is the Director of Transportation for America, the transportation arm of Smart Growth America, which advocates for a transportation system that connects people to jobs and services by multiple modes of travel, no matter their financial means or physical abilities. She was previously at the U.S. Department of Transportation, where she served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Transportation Policy, and then Acting Assistant Secretary of Transportation Policy. Before joining USDOT, Beth worked for Senator Tom Carper of Delaware as an advisor for transportation, as well as trade and labor policy. She also worked as the Policy Director for Smart Growth America and as Legislative Director for Environmental Policy at the Southern Governors Association. She began her career in Washington, D.C., in the House of Representatives, working as Legislative Assistant for Representative Ron Klink, from Pennsylvania Fourth, and as legislative director for Representative Brian Baird out of Washington State. Thanks so much, Beth, for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I have really enjoyed the presentations before and would love to spend hours with each of the presenters talking more about what you said. I think a lot of what I'm going to talk about is going to touch on the issues that you raised and hopefully reinforce all of the incredible points that were made before now. The premise of what I would like to discuss is that the surface transportation program, both at the federal and state levels, is completely devoid of policy goals and thoughtful legal thinking at this point. The 1950s origin of the program persists, and it's walled off from change because different elements of this program are protected at different levels all the way from elected leadership down to career engineering and legal staff within the agencies and it's going to take work coordinated at all levels to be able to make a change there so i want to talk about the situation with the current program in terms of many different levels from culture to standard setting to funding and policy making in its current form the program is frankly founded on standards that you've heard today are known to have dangerous ramifications on tools that, while they can spit out very precise results, are often wildly inaccurate and goals that are often unattainable and are usually out of date. The program is frankly miles away from the general policy goals that we discuss today, like climate change, racial equity, economic development, affordability, access to opportunity, public health, or lowering the cost to the taxpayer. The underlying decisions and assumptions made in the early life of the program, sometimes with little regard for the environment and neighborhoods, and other times with explicit racist intentions, live on in our regulations, procedures, design standards, and performance goals. And they prevent us from addressing modern needs. So I want to talk a little bit about the beliefs, often unsupported by the facts, that continue to guide our decision making in the program. There's a belief that land use is inherently local, but the whole concept behind today's development patterns that have huge ramifications on the transportation system were actually developed and pushed out by the U.S. Department of Commerce under Herbert Hoover in the 1920s. The federal action set the development patterns we have today that make it hard to do anything without a car and sets our transportation projects up to fail a lot of the time. But the feds are almost considered prohibited from fixing a problem that they helped to create. And this is where I do need a little illustration to help make my point. This is something that we worked on in a report we recently released called Driving Down Emissions that looks at the connection between the transportation system and CO2 emissions. And one thing we realize is a lot of people don't understand how land use impacts transportation policy. So we put together two examples. With sprawling development that creates these little pods of development, housing separate from schools, separate from retail, separate from job centers, it requires every one of those links to include a separate trip And almost always a long trip. You can see between the housing pod and the schooling pod, as the crow flies, it's not very far, but you can't traverse that. You must go back to the main road, go over to the next pod and come in. Some examples of this across the country are so absurd. There was an example of a trip in Florida that were two homes 70 yards apart, but you had to travel seven miles between them because of these configurations. And then people say that and policymakers say people don't, quote, choose, unquote, to walk when we set up a situation where it becomes obviously bizarrely difficult to do. When I went to school in Baton Rouge, I lived right next door. My apartment complex was right next door to a grocery store. But there was a wall that I would have had to climb over to get to that grocery store or I would have had to walk in 35 mile per hour traffic. But I chose not to walk. And so both these land use and transportation decisions interact with one another and they force people to drive more and further. When we cluster development, which is the way we develop communities from the beginning of human civilization until the invention of the car, even if you didn't live close to a district like this, you could still drive in, stop and make all of your trips locally, often on foot. And so the overall driving, first, not driving becomes easier. And when you do drive, it's easier to share a ride because two different locations, retail and school might be close together. And it also just means your overall trip is shorter. So these land use decisions determine transportation outcomes. They determine whether or not we're going to have massive amounts of congestion on our roadways. When you build like, this, you basically determine that there will be congestion. And when you build like this, you might have some localized congestion, but your trip is so short, it doesn't impact you the same way. It also determines whether or not transit is possible or walking and biking is possible. They simply are not possible here. You cannot build efficient transit. And even where you have transit, getting to it across these big roadways that you have to build to accommodate all these pods flowing on your road are too dangerous to cross to be able to get to the transit you might actually provide. So I'll come back to some more pictures in a minute. A second belief we have is that highways bring economic development. This is based on the belief that when cars can go faster, when drivers can go faster, they save time. We don't actually know if they do because we don't measure their whole trip, but we presume that they do. And we don't look at the local impacts of those roadways. Many of those highways have destroyed local retail and removed jobs and economic development, but it's still considered overwhelmingly positive economic development in most places. So I'll give you a couple of examples here. I'm going to go back to my hometown and Professor Jones's hometown. This is Claiborne Avenue before they built the Claiborne Expressway. It was a very important black neighborhood with middle class and upper class black residences along a beautiful tree lined boulevard. And there was tons of retail. It goes right up against the French Quarter and some of the most valuable land in the city of New Orleans in the name of economic development and some urban renewal, in other words, racial clearing. We put this in place of all of those businesses and homes. And we created a huge separation between some of our most important downtown communities on the notion that it would save someone time to get somewhere, an area of the city that was not yet developed, an area of the city that still isn't as much of a destination as the area we covered up. This is what blocks or separates the French Quarter from Treme right across the former Boulevard and is not a particularly attractive place to hang out. Another example here in Rochester is called the inner loop. It was one of the last Robert Moses expressways built. Believe it or not, the roadway is open in this picture in the middle of a weekday, but it often looked like this in spite of having 12 lanes to maintain and accommodate potential traffic. Since then, with a grant from the U.S. Department of Transportation when I was there, they filled it in and now there are acres and acres of land that are available for development to create jobs and economic activity. But again, we greet the transportation, these highways as the generator of economic activity and not the land where the economic activity would actually take place. There's a belief that highways speed travel, in spite of ample evidence that they cut off short trips. I mean, if you were in Rochester, there used to be a grid here, you could cross the street pretty easily. Now you need to walk a third of a mile away down the street to cross it. And we don't measure the increase in travel there. We only measure the benefits of people passing through. There's a racial component to this. It was a black neighborhood that they split up and the black residents who had the longer trip, it was for the benefit of the white suburbanites trying to get back downtown, who maybe didn't wanna go through this neighborhood whose trip was sped up. We still treat the projects the same way now, even if the racial undertones are not explicit, they still often have the same implications. And we've found for years that these very projects induce more traffic. Someone might have decided against a trip during high traffic hours, but now that you've expanded these highways, they decide to take a trip during peak hours that they wouldn't necessarily need to do. And then it pushes further development outside of the community, which adds more trips and creates more congestion. So in the end, and usually quite quickly after the expansion, we see at least as much traffic and often more traffic. But we create all this damage in this belief that if we just build two more lanes, everyone can be on the roadway alone at the same time and not slow down. This is the objective of the program. It is an unachievable aim and it is a foolish one, but this is the top priority of our surface transportation program at this time. So, just pointing out, the results of this activity for decades, just looking at 93 to 2017, we looked at the largest 100 urbanized areas, and we saw that freeway capacity grew faster than population growth. So often congestion is attributed to population growth, and we saw congestion explode. So again, we are weathering some real downsides to a program, believing that if we can just build enough lane miles, we'll finally Get through congestion, and all we're doing is creating more and more. And this is true in communities of all sizes. So if you're Omaha, Nebraska, you're seeing substantial population growth, or Boise, Idaho, and you're still keeping up with it or far exceeding it, you see a massive explosion of new congestion. Even in Buffalo, that lost population and added a little bit of freeway miles, an explosion of congestion. If you can lose population, And increased congestion. One would think that we would finally look to other causes for that congestion than lack of highway capacity. But our program is very faith based and, unfortunately, not quite as substance based as I would like. And so we continue to try to do the same things that we've always done. And this leads to some very unsafe conditions, unfortunately. Many of these standards are applied to all kinds of roadways. These are standards developed by smart people in the 1950s who had never built interstates before, not with the idea that they were going to become the end all be all, but we had to start somewhere. And in the intervening 70 years, some of these roadway standards have become almost Talmudic in their power and a belief that they are immutable. I guarantee if we went back in time and talked to the engineers that set them out, they would be baffled as to why we hadn't updated their assumptions in over 70 years. But the standards that Professor Bronin pointed out that are listed in our design manuals were all set to make travel along a single corridor fast and straight. It wasn't set up when applied outside of a separated highway to make things safe. You can be fast and straight. If you want that to be safe as well, it can't be connected to development. It can't be in an area where people live or will travel potentially on foot. It can't be where there's going to be lights and crossings and and driveways. But we've applied those same fast and straight standards to even those arterials that have all of those points of conflicts between intersections and driveways and pedestrians and bicyclists and transit riders. And when safety is considered in many of our roadway designs, It's discussed in terms of how congestion could encourage drivers to weave and how that weaving can result in crashes. It's not talked about in terms of a potential deadly crash with a non-driver. And that is partially because our primary road standard, which I won't go into in great detail, but could spend an hour talking about, which we call level of service, which is a measure of the fluidity and speed of car travel. It doesn't include anybody but the driver. And much of our modeling can't capture short trips by any mode, but particularly that's going to impact the pedestrian because pedestrians don't walk between zip codes very often. And our models don't know how to pick up a trip that is shorter than that. So when you apply these standards to our roadways, you bring those highway speeds into our communities and you. Inherently, create something that encourages a behavior in the driver that is unsafe for the driver and anyone outside of a car. So, I'd like to give an example, and there are many different examples I could get into, but one that particularly galls me is the slip lane. Now, a slip lane is something I think we all see, it's where the driver can slip through an intersection without stopping at a light and without having to slow down much. But as this GIF shows, what you often find in the middle of the slip lane is a crosswalk. So think about the design cues you are sending to the driver. At the same time, we're saying to the driver, here is a convenience for you to take a right at speed, but you better be able to stop quickly if there's a person in the crosswalk. That is fundamentally at odds. And yet this is in our design manuals as an acceptable and safe design. What makes this particularly galling to me is if you try to remove these or try to say they shouldn't be permitted because they're in the design guides, they're considered fine. And they're even backed by transportation agency lawyers that say, as long as you follow the design manual, it's fine. This, by the way, would be my favorite retirement package is just to sue every jurisdiction for every single crash that occurs in one of these things and to start to make them rethink what it is they should be comfortable with, what the design manual tells them or what their logic should tell them. Also, this leads to a belief that most crashes are caused by human mistakes, driver error, something that is backed up by a study from the 1970s that claimed that 90% of crashes were created by human error. Now, look, 1970s is very modern for our program. The fact that it doesn't go back to the 40s is a step up, but it's been undermined by repeated studies since then. And yet this lives on giving engineers and departments of transportation an excuse not to adjust, a very recent studies showed that almost all human error is caused by design cues like this that are confusing or cause a mistake and therefore really should be a potential point of liability for the city. Additionally, these create a need for enforcement. So a roadway built like this communicates to the driver and drivers don't make There's two kinds of decisions you make. One that is for big decisions where you burn a lot of sugar and you burn a lot of energy making that decision. But 85% of our decision making is more automated. Otherwise, we'd be exhausted all the time. When we're on our roadway, we're making those more instinctive decisions. And on the roadway, it's in response to the design of the roadway. Humans are so responsive to design. And on this roadway, you've got free reign. It's wide. It's straightforward. You can see way down the roadway. No reason to look to the side to see where that person might be coming from. You can just speed and you can mark this roadway any speed you want. People are going to follow the speed that that design dictates, which is going to be 40 or 45 miles per hour. So I will go through neighborhoods where this will be marked 30 and no one's going. And I remember being on a roadway in Tampa, Florida in a mid-sized car where the posted speed was 45 miles per hour, but the actual speeds are so high, it shook my car when I pulled into the left-hand turn lane. There was a striped bike lane on the side of that roadway. And apparently the engineers thought that traffic that would shake a car wouldn't intimidate bicyclists not to ride there. But then they say that people quote, choose not to ride their bike along such a road. I actually took a road like this well into Virginia recently and the speed limit changed four times between 35 miles per hour and 55 miles per hour, and there was no change to the design whatsoever, all of which is completely backed up by our design guides. During COVID, without traffic to force people to go at a safe speed, they have been driving incredibly fast, sometimes at really excessive speeds because of the lack of traffic, which turns out to be one of our greatest safety protectors. This leads to a strong call for enforcement. And as my fellow Franklin alum, Professor Jones, discussed, this is used disproportionately on people of color, particularly black drivers and black pedestrians who might cross mid-block because it takes so long to find a crossing. And we don't need enforcement. We could just choose a design that tells people to go the speed you want them to go. We just choose not to. And our systems fear designing for the behavior we want more than designing for unsafe conditions. So from here, I kind of want to move into the other side of the equation, which is the role of the federal government and the relationship between the states and the feds. You know, the states began building the highways before the feds got involved, and their mission was to connect the nation by faster moving roads than the local roads and to pave the local roads. The federal role was to connect the cities by really high quality interstates. But now we don't have that mission or really any mission. The federal mission at this point is to to equitably distribute federal dollars to states to spend as they see fit, which is mostly to maintain and build more highways. They choose the design Of projects they choose for the most part, what projects they pick. The federal programs are actually quite flexible in what sort of project you might build. In answer to a question that was asked earlier, really all federal dollars can be used for sidewalks. It's just one of many eligible expenses, and it's never chosen by the states. And that's a game that's been played in the program when we sought reforms by adding eligibilities. Those eligibilities were just ignored for lack of priority. And I wanna be clear that the feds require very little. The states are the kings of this program. Many times states believe they can't do things at their departments of transportation because of a federal requirement, but that's often not the case. It's often their own requirements that prevent them from making changes. And sometimes, frankly, the states are just looking for someone to be able to blame. And the feds, particularly federal highways, which refers to the states as their clients and not the taxpaying public, are happy to be the folks who are blamed. In terms of federal requirements, Professor McFarland raised some great points about another issue that I wanted to cover, and that is where the feds do make some requirements in terms of environmental justice reviews, Title VI, and NEPA reviews. These are all project-by-project reviews and are very fact-dependent, so engineering usually needs to get to 25 or 30% before these reviews can take place. Now, just apply that to human nature. The hours and the effort that goes into a particular design before these reviews take place. Obviously, it's going to be hard to cancel something at that point. Once you're that far down the line, you're probably now talking about, when you find a problem, mitigating the damage that you all recognize you just are going to create. Which leads me to say something highly controversial. None of these review processes stops projects that have funding. They don't. If a project is funded, it's a stumbling block at most. The best these procedures can do is delay a project until political leadership changes who might stop the project for policy reasons. But I find that even if they get stopped then if there's another political leadership change, it just comes up again. That's the story of the Intercounty Connector in Maryland. It was stopped for a while and then it started again. And nothing stopped it because it had money. The problem is we have not steered the program towards different goals than speeding car travel. That's what we have to do. We need to explain that there is no highway expansion that's going to make long distances convenient. And we need to also say it's not enough to wait on the court's to intervene at too late a day to get a tiny bit of relief for damage from a project that often comes with little benefit, but happens to be at the state's discretion. We need to review the benefits that should actually be expected, quantify them, and expect projects to deliver on them. So that takes us up to the policy level. We'll start at the federal level with Congress and the president, but the fact of the matter is legislators and governors have as much power to change things and have frankly all from the president to governors, from Congress to state legislators, have championed a 1950s approach as a bipartisan connection. The funding in most cases comes from a trust fund, which means you don't have to argue for money to be appropriated annually. You get good at understanding an issue and arguing why it's important to be funded when you have to protect it in every budget cycle. Transportation doesn't have to be. Whatever's going on with housing or health care or schooling, transportation just is taken care of because it's a trust fund program. And it prevents people from thinking terribly deeply about what you get for it. As a result, our current approach actually undermines both parties priorities with very equal effect. You know, Republicans will call for local control, for cost savings. For economic development, Democrats will focus on creating good jobs, looking at equity and climate, and our current program does bad things in every single one of those areas. So it's bipartisan in that we've all agreed that none of our priorities should be seen in the program, a bizarre outcome that seems to persist year after year. We really need to rechart the course of the program, and we can do this in a bipartisan way, too. We just haven't tried. My organization talks a lot about taking a fix it first approach to our highways, basically saying that before you build new things, you should be able to show that you can manage the existing system. Right now, we argue for more money to fix our crumbling roads and bridges every year, and yet we don't use that money to fix our crumbling roads and bridges. In many places, we're building new roads we know we can't afford while our existing system continues to crumble. This is something we can absolutely tackle with very modest policy changes. And it's been hugely popular. We publish a report called Repair Priorities that include folks all the way from U.S. Perg to taxpayers for common sense. We have libertarians and super progressive liberals all in agreement. And yet we haven't been able to get Congress to take it up or state legislators to take it up. That started to change. And I'll talk about that in a little bit but it's not just enough to fix it first. Those pictures I showed you of interstates that have caused huge damage and there's just as many arterials that create massive blockages from neighborhoods to for people to reach opportunity on the other side. We have to fix it better. We have to make particularly those arterial roadways much safer. If we want people to take transit, they need to be able to reach it without playing Frogger with their lives. They need to be able to walk short distances My brother, who lives in Livingston Parish right outside of Baton Rouge, there's a grocery store four blocks away. The only way he can get there is to walk in 45 mile per hour traffic or in a drainage ditch. And I will tell you, in Louisiana, you find some interesting critters in those drainage ditches. But again, he chooses not to walk. Just ask the Department of Transportation and Development. But what we find is when we talk about safety, Pedestrian safety is an incredibly bipartisan issue. We do direct technical assistance with localities, and that includes coastal cities, cities in the center of the country, rural areas, urban areas. We have conducted TA in several communities of 500 to 5,000 in tribal communities and in some of the biggest cities in the country. They're all looking for ways to do this, and we can do that. There's also something we're working on to fix it better to evaluate the whole system in terms of CO2 emissions. Something that could easily be done and was actually put into regulation before it was repealed by the current administration. But also to measure access in the 1950s when we created our system, we didn't know how to measure full trips. We do now, and so we can measure all trips potentially from every household by all modes of travel, and in doing so, can figure out if we're creating a system that is a supported both for white collar and upper class people going to center cities and also people going to more shift type work and to minority communities who are often ignored by our program. So these sorts of reforms were seen in the House bill, which was a huge change, quite frankly, from any reauthorization we've seen before with a fix at first introduced by a Tea Party Republican and a progressive Democrat and adopted by unanimous consent. and access to jobs and services being included as a required measurement. The Senate, on the other hand, passed a bipartisan bill to do nothing to update the program. And this is the standard approach with Republican and Democratic leadership. So this is the rare issue that is not impacted much by the election. As I said, Republicans really want to see the feds give money to states to determine locally what the importance is, and they just want federal requirements off. Democrats will seek more money for transit or rail, but don't want to make choices that require the roadways you have to cross to be safer so you can reach those alternatives. They also will agree to things like a pot of money to spend 1% of federal dollars fixing the safety problem you're creating with the other 99%. And this is what we need to get out of. And this is what we see with the House proposal that was passed over the summer. I will also just mention before I conclude that the House has done some exciting things. We're expecting to see something offered by Representative Chewy Garcia from Chicago to push for transit parity, to say that transit should get as much money from the federal government as highways, especially now that we don't have a user fee-based system. We are collecting general funds from across the board to pay for the transportation system. So these are really exciting issues that are kind of pushing us to rethink transportation. But like I said at the beginning, we really do need a system where we are tackling it from the policy level at the top and working with the engineers within the agency to give them the tools and the opportunity to make changes at the design level as well. And we also need to recognize that our roadway system is developed on a multi-jurisdictional level. So even within one city, you have roads owned by the state, the county, and the city, and they all need to be on the same page to create a network that everyone can use and understand. And so this is going to take a collaboration between those working at the policy level like me, lawyers on the ground, engineers within the agencies and across the spectrum of governmental structures, which is no easy task. But I think just forcing people to consider the ramifications of the poor decisions we've been making can get us a lot of the way. And that's
0: where I'll stop. Great. Well, thanks so much, Beth. That was a fantastic, fantastic tour de force. We have time now for some questions. I want to briefly acknowledge a couple of questions that have come up in the Q&A. Now, these are kind of in the weeds, legal questions about how to kind of get around this problem of compliance as a defense. And rather than taking Beth into those weeds, I'll just mention that there are cases and I, I've written about them, um, I'll drop a link in, in the Q&A, where plaintiffs have successfully sued and won millions of dollars, notwithstanding the city's compliance with those standards. So I think there is a kind of defensive lawyering that is going on that is also conveniently maps on to the preferences of DOTs. Uh, I don't well, want to and Greg, like- <laughs> I will
1: point out that all of those cases, all of which I've read because I obsess about these things say that the engineer does not get out of using engineering judgment just because there's a standard. But these lawsuits are being applied to the cities that are already trying to rectify the problems and not being applied elsewhere. I hate to be in this world where we're trying to generate fear, but we kind of need to, to force people to try to do something different than what they're comfortable doing. Right now, if you're an engineer who really wants to narrow lanes to create a tighter feel for the driver so they want to drive slower, they have to go through an 18 to 24 month exemption process and they will be dinged in their performance review for having done that. So those lawsuits, if they were being brought more broadly, would create a counter pressure that empowers those that want to do Hmm. the
2: right thing.
0: That's super interesting. Tara Brennan has a question.
2: This is a great talk. There's lots of issues here. I just wanted to focus on one of the things you said, which is transportation policy is land use policy and, you know, vice versa. And, you know, what I'm thinking about right now is this question of zoning. And so, you know, zoning has been in the news recently for a lot of different reasons, but in part because of its equity implications. But if you look at transportation and how that links, it's obviously a big link. And we're starting right now in Connecticut. This it's called desegregate Connecticut, but it's essentially a statewide zoning reform effort. I'll put a link to that in the chat too. And what we're finding is that even though we have transit-oriented development and caps on minimum parking in our platform, it takes so long to explain that it's very hard for people to understand. So I guess my question for you is, how do you help connect people at the statewide and local levels who need to fix the, the land use side of things with the issues that are real? And I should say too, I accept your set of facts, I guess, in an era where facts are questionable. Your facts are the right facts. And and until people understand that, we'll never get anywhere.
1: That is an amazing question. And I wish I had time to go through all that is made possible by measuring access to jobs and services. We basically have come up with a way to quantify a lot of the very quality of life things that we've been seeking. And I've worked with engineers that say, I want to build the sort of community you're talking about, but I'm an engineer and I can't build a, something that I'll know it when I see it. I actually need a number. And so we've been using GIS technology and all kinds of things from congestion data and maps, and but also the GTFS feeds for transit service and some proxies for walking and biking to determine how many places you can arrive at within a certain period of time. So congestion's in it, but congestion is just one of about 20 things impacting your ability to get somewhere. The way we measure transportation right now, if you drive at speed in circles, that's success. You never need to arrive. But if you go in stop and go traffic for four minutes, that's a failure because it was stop and go. So it's just this weird system. But the beautiful thing about measuring access is it gets at the land use side and how transportation and land use interact. So one of the solutions to lack of access is to move the thing you need closer and you can figure out the benefit cost comparison of a $10 million roadway expansion versus putting a grocery store in your neighborhood and those sorts of things. You can even provide tax incentives for development of certain kinds based on this. And then you don't have to get into the technical things about parking you can just say, if we use this surface parking lot to accommodate these things that the neighborhood needs, we get these benefits and accessibility that we can't get any other way. I feel like we failed up until recently, and maybe it's just because we didn't have the technology to do it, to bring this to a level that people understand. We've just told them that you'll have to go slower and that freaks people out. Now we can say you'll arrive sooner. You might go slower on the way, but you'll still get there faster. And I really do find when people talk about their trips, they talk about it in terms of their actual time. In transportation, when we talk about time savings, we're not actually evaluating time. We're evaluating speed, assuming it translates to time, not recognizing that what we do for speed often lengthens trips. So getting to the actual very human experience of travel and equating it to time can help to keep the conversation at a level people understand. And then when you get into the weeds on these issues and start talking about, zoning and things that, oh my God, even I have struggled to listen to, you can relate it back to the outcome you're seeking. And I will just say that these ways of measuring the transportation and land use system, they're incredibly affordable. They're sometimes cheaper than a lot of things we do now. Virginia now uses this measure to evaluate every one of their new capacity projects. And the state of Massachusetts has been looking at it to do their alternatives analysis. And we've worked with Washington State to do some corridor analysis. The states have gone before and they've done incredible work here. We've also worked with LA on using it for land use. So I'd love to introduce you to more of it. And I can post some information about our technical folks from the University of Wisconsin who are doing work in this area. And I think it could really help.
0: Okay, we have time for one more question quickly before we break for lunch. This question is from Professor Clayton Nall, and he asks, what will be needed to co-opt the building trades and asphalt industry into more responsible transportation policy? I guess I might add to that, you know, is this something that can be done internally through reform at those organizations by new generations of engineers and so on? Or is this something that requires an external push? And if so, what levers would you recommend
1: there? That is a fantastic question. To some extent, I'll answer it in two ways. Like I mentioned before, there are a lot of people within transportation agencies that desperately want to do the right thing. They are not given the tools to do it. The models don't capture short trips. They can't see the impact of land use. The trip generation models assume the same trip generation in a downtown area as in a sprawling area. They have no way to do what we want them to do. And it's because we accept using decades old tools in this program that would be an embarrassment to any other program that gets this kind of federal funding. We shouldn't accept it. We should require all of these things to be updated and tested. In air quality, they do modeling and overlay the monitoring. And when they find a Delta, they fix their models or they try to. In transportation, we model things, build and never look back. So a lot of it is we're not giving... The people doing the work, the tools they need to even adjust to today's needs, when they try to do the right thing, if it's not in the design manual, they have to go through this lengthy exceptions process. And in doing so, they go off schedule, off budget, and they will find themselves out of the running for promotions, for raises. I mean, they get dinged in their performance review for always being off schedule and off budget. So... We really need to help the engineers, many of which want to do the right thing. But the other thing is there's going to be plenty of opportunity in jobs. I'm going to take it out to the trades advocates, the ashtos and ARTBUS and labor unions of the world. They all often fear change in the program as well. But I think we just need to point out to them that they're all going to have plenty of work. There's actually more jobs created in maintenance projects per dollar spent than in new capacity projects. We employ a lot of lawyers on those new capacity projects to defend from the lawsuits, to get land, all that sort of thing. But it's not actually a lot of jobs. Maintenance projects create more jobs and they can get done faster. So I think we're just going to have to have an honest conversation that you all will be taken care of. Your employment is well protected. Your causes are well protected. They're just going to be put to a different purpose. And I think we'll have to focus on both of those issues, both the political and support for the worker who was designing the projects to be able to accomplish the change.
0: Fascinating. The political economy angles here are truly hard and are so grateful for your insight. Beth, thank you very much.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you to my co-host, Jeff Lynn. Thank you to our producer, Skylar Powles, and to all of you, our listeners. If you haven't already... Please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find the show. You can subscribe there as well. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.